All right, good morning, Vine family. If you want to grab a seat, love to encourage you to continue these conversations uh, after, uh, after the service. There's some time afterwards. Greet some people, uh, connect. Uh, it's good to be together as a family. Uh, to worship God, but also to fellowship uh, together. So definitely keep an eye out for newer people. If you're new, welcome. My name is Michael McKittrick, and I am a, I'm a church plant resident here on staff at The Vine. And uh, this morning, we get to finish up our summer series in the parables of Jesus. I hope you've been enjoying it. Uh, I know I've been freshly encouraged and challenged uh, at the teachings of Jesus once again this summer. And I'm even hopeful that maybe some of you that will have whet your appetite to maybe say, man, my own devotions, my own time in God's word, maybe I want to pick up one of the gospels and read all the way through it this fall. And really just soak in who Jesus is and what he did and, and how he taught us to live. And so hope that you'll be encouraged and challenged by that. And this morning as we finish up our series, we're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll also be on the screen. And uh, this is obviously a very well-known parable. Um, probably maybe, maybe the best-known parable, or definitely the top three. Uh, it's so popular that the term Good Samaritan has made its way into our kind of language of the culture. Anytime someone does something good, we might say they're a Good Samaritan. They did a, a good deed, right? It's a very, very popular and common story. In fact, probably a lot of you could kind of retell it in your own words to us this morning. So why, why look at the Good Samaritan this morning? Well, even though it's well known, I think that we sometimes, either one, we miss some things and we need to be reminded of them, or two, we, ju- we just forget and our hearts grow hard. And I think this is a beautiful parable because it really shows us the heart of Christianity. And the heart of Christianity, like this parable, is much more challenging, much more provocative, and much more Jesus-centered than sometimes we commonly think. And so I hope this morning that God will give us fresh eyes and fresh ears to see and hear what he wants to show us about himself and how we are to respond to that. And so let's pray just for that, that God would help us, because we need help this morning, and that God would help me as I, as I preach, because I need help, uh, so that we can walk away changed by God speaking to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are... Uh, Not just a creator God who made the world and wound it up like a clock and let it run. But as we've sung about this morning, as we've heard, you are a God that's intimately involved. You're not far off. But you come near to us through your word. And yet we know that our our hearts are so often prone to be hard-hearted. Our ears are prone to be closed. We, We think we're wise in our own eyes and so... Would you, by your Holy Spirit, speak into our often dark, hard hearts the light of the gospel so we can be transformed by seeing the face of Jesus Christ? So pray you'd help me now to speak what you want me to speak and nothing else. Would you help us to collectively listen and be changed? For your glory and our good. Amen. All right. Well, let me read uh, Luke 10, 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, 
you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Well, as we look at this parable, we've been talking a lot about how every parable comes in in a, in a context, right? There's a, there's a situation that's going on, and so often, especially with this parable, we take it out of context. We tend to hear just the parable and miss all the dialogue around it. And so it's really important to, to pay attention to this context. And the context is Jesus is, at this point in Luke's gospel, he's finished up his teaching in the north, and now he's on his way to Jerusalem. He started telling the disciples, I'm going to go. I'm going to get betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. And I'm going to die. And three days later, I'll rise again. And at the end of chapter 9, it says that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He's on his way to die for sinners. And on his journey now, we come across this lawyer who stands up. And what we see is that this is not Jesus teaching his disciples. He's not teaching his disciples how to live. He's engaging in conflict with a man who's challenging him. A lawyer who wants to put Jesus to the test. You see that in verse 25 and 29. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And then in verse 29, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus. There's a conflict here going on. There's a showdown between Jesus and this lawyer. But don't think of a lawyer like today. A lawyer back then would be someone who studied the law, the Old Testament, and interpreted it and taught it to the people. So think more a religious teacher representing the, the Jewish religion of the day. And he's, he's, got, he's got a challenge for Jesus. But not only is this context now we need to take into account, this context of opposition, but we also need to see how clear the structure is. This is something else I think we miss. If, if, uh, if, you, if you read through it again, maybe you would notice this, but there's kind of two rounds of the same pattern. There's a question from the lawyer in verse 25 and 29. Jesus responds with a question in verse 26 and 36. The lawyer gives his own answer in verse uh, 27 and then verse 37. And then Jesus gives a final challenge or command in verse 28 and verse 37. It's the same pattern. It's two rounds of the same pattern. And the parable is really told to set up the question. That's the whole point of the parable. The whole point of the parable is to set up Jesus' question to the man. And so again, we see how important the surrounding context is to understanding this parable. Because if we don't pay attention to that, we're probably going to miss something. So let's just walk through these two rounds and see what Jesus is trying to expose in this man. So round one begins verse 25 with the question. The Lord stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? 
But this isn't really a question, right? I mean, have you ever had that experience? Maybe it's in, you've been in a class and some other student asks us of a teacher. Maybe it's like some family member asks you a question. But right away you know, this is not a question. This is a challenge, right? Um, I remember someone who's in school, you know, some smart student would be like, Professor, what do you think of? And really they're daring them to disagree because they're so smart, right? Or maybe it's like a family member goes, did you take out the garbage? And you're like, you're not asking for information. You know I didn't do it and you want to push me, right? That's what this guy's doing. He's not coming with an honest question. He's coming to test Jesus, we're told, right? So how does Jesus deal with this arrogant, testy lawyer? Well, what he often does, he replies with a question. He doesn't respond with an answer. He responds with a question. He says, okay, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You're a teacher of the law. You tell me. What does the law say? And he points back in this question to not what the man ultimately thinks, but what does the man thinks that the law says? What's the authoritative answer to this question? And it's found only in God's word. Jesus is pointing back to there. And the man gives an answer, right? In verse 27, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting two passages from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, for the loving God, and Leviticus 19, for the loving neighbor. He gives these two biblical answers. And Jesus says in verse 28, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The end of round one. But you know something interesting? It starts with Jesus on the hot seat, right? The man is testing Jesus. But then at the end, do you see what Jesus has done? He's flipped it around. Now the lawyer's on the hot seat. He's put him to the test and said, You passed meaning he's the one on the hot seat. And if you really want to pass the test, you've got to go and actually do it. It's not just enough to say it. You've got to go and do it. I'm not the one being tested here. You really are the one being tested. If you want to inherit eternal life, love God with all your soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, go and do it. And on one hand, you're like, man, that's really cool that Jesus flipped the script. But maybe some of you are having this question. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. I know this sounds weird to ask, but is Jesus, like, teaching heresy or something? Because I thought we were saved by grace, and it sure sounds like he's saying you can earn eternal life through works. Like, that's not what we normally hear on Sunday morning. So what's going on with this? You, You can inherit eternal life by doing something? Well, it's important to look back at Deuteronomy 6, which is the section that both the lawyer has quoted from, but also Jesus alludes to it in his own answer. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, the chapter really begins and ends with similar similar commands. So in verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. And at the very end, again, verse 23 and 24, and he brought us out from there, there's God, and might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. 
Now, what you see there is just this theme of obedience and long life are connected. And obedience and long life is connected to inheriting or living or possessing the land. So that's probably what this lawyer is thinking of. Well, back in the day when you first brought us into the land, you said, obey, and you'll keep living in here. We disobeyed, and so we got kicked out of the land. We got sent into exile. We got taken over by the Babylonians. But then we finally got returned back to the land about 500 years before Jesus. And so you can imagine their thinking that developed at this time in the Jewish mindset was, well, we disobeyed and that led to exile. So if we obey, we can win our way back in. There's some logical sense to that, right? Disobedience leads to exile and death. So if we obey, we can earn our way back in. We can earn our way back to having the land and having the Messiah and having life. And there's something somewhat right about this. God does want us to obey. And yet there's something off about this. Because Deuteronomy 6 doesn't just say, obey and you'll earn it. But I love how, what verses 20 to 23 say. It's a beautiful section. It says, when your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? Why do we have all these rules, Dad? Well, then you shall say, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. See what Moses is teaching the people to say? When your kids ask you, why do we obey? You don't answer because you have to earn your way in. The answer is, let me tell you, we were slaves once, and God saved us by grace. And he gave us the land by grace. And so we respond out of obedience. It's salvation first, then obedience, not the other way around. But so often we get mixed up at this point. Maybe you've had this experience, but sometimes if I'm hanging out somewhere just with new people, maybe I'm on a plane or a bus, I might ask, hey, what do you think Christianity is about? And the number one answer I usually get is, well, you're supposed to be a good person and love others. I'm like, well, not really, actually. That's not really what Christianity is about. That's all the emphasis on obedience. Really, it's about something more than that. It's about salvation by God first, and then obedience. Because if you want to earn salvation by obedience, then you have to be perfect. So Jesus, in one sense, isn't lying when he says... If you were to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself 24 hours a day, seven days a week, from the moment you're born to the moment you've died, you'll be fine. Go ahead. Do it. Try it. See how it works. You gave the answer, smart lawyer. Go ahead. Do it. See what Jesus is doing? He's challenging him. He's pushing him. It's kind of like one time one of my little kids that kept wanting to get in this pink little buggy that was really tipsy. And it's like, no matter how many times I told them, this, this is going to end badly. Don't, don't get in there. You're going to get hurt. They just really wanted to get into it. So one day, I was like, you know what? All right, it's like this high off the ground. It's carpet. We're not going to get that hurt. So I left them. Go ahead. Get in the buggy. Go for it. Do it your way. They got in the buggy. Buggy tips over. They fall. Never got in the buggy again after that, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, kind of, okay, I'll leave you to your own devices. 
devices and let's see how that works. And it doesn't work. And that's what Jesus is doing with this lawyer. The lawyer is trying to test him and he's saying, okay, if you think that's the test, go ahead, try and pass it. I dare you. Take just one of them. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. Have you always, every day, every minute of the day, used every natural ability you have, all of your strength, all of your energy, to only love God? Or have there been moments where you've used it for self at the expense of loving God? You're done. You're toast. Can't make it. Standards perfection. So Jesus is saying, look, it's not that the standard's bad. You are called to love God. You are called to love your neighbor. But if you think that's the way to earn eternal life, you're in big trouble. Because you'll never be perfect. So ends round one. And the lawyer, though, he picks up on something's a little off here. This went too easy. Jesus said, okay, something's up. So look at round two. Verse 29. He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? You, you, you can imagine him thinking, okay, I, I think I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But loving my neighbor, if I can make that a small enough category of people, then I'm set. I'm in. All I got to do is make sure that, that bar is low enough, and, I, and then no problem. I can clear it. So I'm just going to ask Jesus, who's my neighbor? And one of the reasons why he asked this is because at the time there was a debate going on amongst the Jews Jews about who is your neighbor. So let's look at Leviticus 19.18 where it's first mentioned. And we read this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So many Jews are saying, ah, see, it starts out by saying not bearing a grudge against the sons of our people, and then it says love your neighbor. So our neighbor is only Jewish people. Awesome. We can cut out everybody else. The Samaritans, the pagans, the Romans, the Greeks. Cut them all out. We just need to love Jews. And some Pharisees were even going further and saying, actually, you only have to love those Jews that are keeping the law. Everyone else is out. We can just keep making the bar lower and lower. Just my type of people. That's the only kind of people I need to love. Sound familiar? The same sin shows up today, right? I only need to love and care for my type of people. And so Jesus, again, responds to his question with a question. But this time, instead of pointing him back to the law, in which the guy might try to argue his way out, he starts off by telling a story to get behind his defenses. And then ends the story with a question, right? And so here's the story. You know it, right? Man's traveling on a dangerous road, gets beat up, left for dead. First, a priest comes by, and then a Levite. And we should not think of these as bad guys. Priests and Levites were honored people in the society. So think of the best, good, moral people, and that's who they are. And yet, surprisingly, they walk on by. We're not told why, but they do. And now when the third character is about, third character is about to be introduced, they all know this is going to be the hero, Right? We've had the first two options that didn't work. Now the third option is going to come in and work. And maybe it's going to be just a regular average Joe, just like me. A regular average Jew like me. But instead, shockingly, Jesus says in verse 33, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan comes by and shows him kindness. 
the Samaritans who were very unexpectedly to be the hero because there was so much animosity between the Jews and Samaritans. I mean, the Samaritans were those Jews that got left in the land when exile happened. They intermarried. They mixed up the Jewish religion with other faiths. They were half-breeds. They were religious compromisers. We don't deal with them. We don't even walk through their territory. We don't talk to them. In fact, the Samaritans had built their own temple, saying this is the real temple. And when the Jews, for a brief amount of time before Jesus had their own rulers, they destroyed the Samaritan temple. The Samaritans responded by taking bones and throwing them in the Jewish temple to desecrate it right before Passover. These guys are not friends. They don't like each other. And yet, and yet it's the Samaritan that shows kindness. It's shocking. And I don't even think we probably get how shocking it is. I was trying to, to think about it. And I was thinking, imagine if, if there was a big gathering of Madisonites in downtown Madison and Jesus was there. And someone challenged Jesus. He might tell a story maybe like this. There was a, an African-American man going, traveling, and he got attacked and beat up and left on the road. And first, a Black Lives Matter or, uh, organizer walked by, but he passed him by. And then a Democratic senator came by, and he also passed by. And then rumbling down the road, not EPA-approved muffler, giant pickup truck, Confederate flag on the back, white southerner, stops and gets out and clothes the man with his own clothes, puts him in his truck, drives him to the hospital, stays with him all night in the, EC, uh, in, in the ICU, pays his bill and tells the doctor, whatever else you need, call me and I'll pay for it. And then Jesus says, okay, now which three showed true neighbor love? And the story is so obvious that everyone knows the answer, but no one wants to say it because they don't like it. Same here. Notice in verse 37, the lawyer doesn't say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even bring himself to say, it's the Samaritan that's the hero. No, it's the one who showed him mercy. It's so shocking. And Jesus, remember, he, he's been responding to this guy's questions with questions. And when the man has to answer, notice that Jesus actually changes his question. The man asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus asked in verse 36, which of these proved to be a neighbor? Jesus is saying, it's not about lowering the bar to how few people do I have to love. It's about raising the bar to how loving do I have to be to anyone and everyone, no matter how different. Whether they're a different ethnicity or a different gender, different socioeconomic class, whether they have a different political persuasion than you, whether they're a different age, it doesn't matter. The question is not, how few do I have to love, but how much do I have to love them? That's what Jesus is saying. And this shouldn't surprise us because actually when God first gave the law to love your neighbor, he finished off that section in verse 34 of Leviticus 19 with these words, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns or who lives with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord, your God. You were once outsiders. 
You were once outcasts, and I loved you, says God. So how can you not show love to those who are outsiders and outcasts to you? That's what I'm calling you to. The bar is raised incredibly high on who to love. It's anyone and everyone you come in contact with, even the people you don't like. And not only is the bar raised in who to love, but it's raised in how you are to love. Because the love that's shown by the Samaritan is costly, right? I mean, he puts, he puts, he binds up his wounds and he puts oil and wine on him and he puts them on his own animal, meaning he probably is now walking or maybe he has to carry some of the goods the animal was carrying. And he pays for all his needs and says, I'll pay more still. The amount of love shown is costly. It's not just mere politeness or mere Midwestern kindness to those you don't like. It's sacrificial and costly love. And Jesus says, this is how you're to love. You're to go and do likewise. This is how God wants us to love one another. But again, back to the original question. How do I earn eternal life? Well, if you want to earn it through obedience, this is the kind of love you have to show to earn it all the time. So go ahead. If you want to earn it, go for it. Try it. I think so often when we read this story, we want to put ourselves as the good Samaritan, right? We want to be the hero of the story. But if we look in our own hearts and lives, there's probably, for every time we're a good Samaritan, there's probably three or four or five times where we're the priest or the Levite. It's not convenient for me today. It's going to cost a little too much. I'm just going to pass on by. Maybe it's that person at work that, you know, you're polite to them, but you don't help them out like you help all your other coworkers because they're not very kind to you or you don't really like them for some reason, and so you don't show them love that way. Base minimum politeness. But this kind of love, no. And before we even think about those out, outside, what about even just people in your own family? Do you love your own family members this costly all the time? I don't. You probably don't. We often fail to love this way. And if this is the way we're to earn life, then failure means death. And so if you think that Christianity is just about loving God and loving others, and that's your ticket in, this story should crush any hope you have of making it. Because the bar has been raised so high in what it means to love God and love neighbor that it is humanly impossible to keep it all the time. It's not that the standard's bad. It's not that the bar is set wrong. The bar is set exactly where God wants it. This is the kind of God he is, and this is how he wants us to live. The problem is that we fall short. So that's why when people say, oh, just loving others is sharing the gospel, it's not. It's good, we're called to do it, but that's not good news. If the good news is you can earn God's love by trying hard enough, it's not good news because we fail. But there is good news, because there is a good Samaritan, just not us. Remember our context? Jesus, even while he's being opposed by this lawyer, is on his way to Jerusalem to die on a cross He will become an outcast and hated by his own people. He will pay the ultimate cost to save us who are broken and dying 
on the side of the road. And it's going to cost him not money, but his very life. Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the only one who's loved God perfectly. Who loved God enough to humble himself even to the point of death on a cross. Who loved his neighbors so much that even when his neighbors betrayed him, abandoned him, crucified him, he called out, Father, forgive them. That's costly love. Jesus is the only one who's ever kept these commands perfectly. And he says, I'm going to die the death that you deserve for failing the bar. And then I'm going to credit to you my perfect obedience. Now that is good news. That is gospel. That's the heart of Christianity. What God has done for us in Jesus. And then it overflows into loving others. See, because if you're just trying to earn your way by loving others, you'll either get depressed at failing it, or you'll somehow make the bar low enough that you'll be arrogant enough to think you're making it on your own. And you'll look down at all the other people. I do a great job. I don't know what's the problem with them. But the gospel frees us to actually love. Because first, we've been loved. We've been loved first. 1 John 4, 10 to 11. I love this verse. It says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That's the sacrifice to take away God's wrath for our sins. Now, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see the order? God loved us first, and then we love God and others. Because our hearts are changed and transformed. So if you find in your own life, man, I wish I looked more like the Good Samaritan, but I don't. The answer is not just try harder. When you know someone else who's like, I feel like I'm failing at this. The answer is not just, well, try harder, love, love more, love more, go for it. That's not the answer. The answer is to remind them of the gospel. So guess what? Even that moment when you fail, I've got good news for you. God still loves you because of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So what do you want to do now? Do you still want to be mean to that person or do you want to love them? When there's maybe a neighbor who's unkind to you, and you're like, man, they don't, they don't deserve my love. They're so unkind to me. They're, they're, they can't be the neighbor I'm called to love. We remember when we were God's enemies, he sent his son to die for us. How can we not love our enemies? When we run into someone who maybe is a poor neighbor, and we go, well, if we love them, they're going to waste our love. They don't deserve our love. It's going to cost too much, and they're just going to waste it. We remember, wait a minute, we were poor. And Christ, who is rich, made himself poor, that we might become rich. And he gives us grace and his love day after day, even though how often do we in our own lives take his grace and go, thanks God for that grace, now I'm going to go right back to doing what I want. And he keeps pouring out his grace. So how can we say, I'll only give it if they deserve it or won't waste it? Or what happens if we run into someone who's different than us and we go, well, they're just too different. It's too hard. We won't love them. How much different is Jesus from us? God, humanity, perfect sinner. And yet he humbled himself, took on our own flesh, lived our own life, and then died for us. How can we then say, we can't love someone who's different? 
he did for us. Do you see how the more we soak in God's love for us, it starts to change our hearts and how we love others. Because God does want us to love him with all our soul, mind, heart, and strength. He does want us to love our neighbors sacrificially, costly, in a way that would make people go, I don't get those Christians at the vine. They're crazy. Like, loving people that way, that doesn't make any sense. And we could go, you're right, it doesn't make sense, but it's Jesus. I can't do this on my own. But Jesus is changing me to be that kind of person. Once we admit that we're not the Good Samaritan, and Jesus is, then we can actually start to follow in his footsteps. And even when we fall short, we can repent and go back to him and find grace to get back up and keep trying so that we can love more than we would normally, more sacrificially than we would normally. If we're going to actually engage our neighborhood, if we're going to engage the city of Madison and help people see the beauty of Christ's love for them, we're going to have to declare it to them, and we're going to have to demonstrate it. And we can't do that unless we're soaking in God's love for us in Jesus. So let us daily remember the true good Samaritan's love for us so that we then can love our neighbors at cost and love God as he deserves for the good of our neighbors in our place and for the glory of God. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that though your law is perfect and we fall short of it, you have provided good news to us. You sent your son to obey perfectly and yet to die in our place so that we could be loved by you and not face your judgment, so we could have our hearts and lives transformed, so it could overflow into loving others. And so I pray this morning that first and foremost, that you would help every one of us to know deeply your love for us in Jesus. That we would trust in him instead of our own efforts for eternal life. And that would overflow into love of neighbor in you. So would you make us a church? that really does love our neighbors around us sacrificially. Not as a way to earn something from you, but as a response to your great love for us. I pray this in your name. Amen.